establishing connection to your sign tonight. Please stand by. Welcome back to another edition of the Science Night Podcast. My name is James, and with me, as always, is Steffi. Hey. And Jason. Hello. We also have a special guest joining us straight from the Strange by Nature podcast, Kirk Mona. Thanks for coming on tonight, Kirk. Absolutely. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. We are so happy to be back from our little midwinter's nap. And tonight, we're talking about Twisted Metal and a core issue. But before we get to the news, let's meet our guest. So, Kirk, I'm going to ask you like a super tough question that everyone always overthinks. Okay, starting off hard. Yeah, yeah. exactly. The, the tough hitting questions. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do? Well, what I do uh, is similar to what you do. I'm a podcaster. Not by day, I guess podcaster by night. I am the host and producer of Strange by Nature podcast. We are three professional naturalists, or uh, one of our hosts is a former professional naturalist. She's actually gone back to school to become a nurse. And uh, professional naturalists are kind of a weird breed uh, by nature. We often think of naturalists as being like sort of the olden days folks like Darwin and whatnot. But these days, uh, naturalists are mostly people who work at places like nature centers, education facilities, and we educate the public on all things natural history. So we span on the show quite a wide range of topics, everything from, you know, microbiology to astronomy. Yeah, you know, we take the wide view of what nature is, and then we find all the really good, weird bits and share them. I want to be the kind of thing where it's like, when you hear it, you go, oh my God, I got to tell someone about this completely bonkers thing that I just learned about. So that's what we try to do every week is bring you three strange Weird stories. We had James on our show sharing a story a while back, so it was fun to come here and uh, share some stuff or talk with your audience. And I got to ask another follow-up question. Like, what got you to, to want to become a naturalist? What got you excited about the natural world and want to be able to teach other people about it? You know, it's it's kind of a bunch of stuff. I guess when I was little, I really enjoyed, you know, being outside and digging around in the garden, exploring in the woods, stuff like that. And then I wasn't sure what I was going to do, you know, when I became a big kid. At one point I was like, oh, you know, I think I want to be an astronomer. Right. And then I realized that it's mostly just math. It's not really just looking at stars. So that was out. Didn't really want to do that anymore. I was looking at doing something around just the environment, you know, wanted to save the world, basically. And also really uh, ended up meeting, ended up meeting a, a youth worker who really got me involved with working with other uh, youth at the time. <laughs> I was working with my peers. And then as I got older and older, I kept on working with that age group and found that I really enjoyed opening kids' eyes to nature. And a lot of their eyes are already open, so they're seeing stuff that we don't even notice. So it's kind of fun to see the world through their eyes and then be able to help them see some of those hidden things and understand how things work. And so I think that the dirty secret is one day I was in college, not totally sure what I was going to do. It was something, I was getting a degree that was you know, going to sort of get me ready for what I wanted to do. And someone was like, hey, what are, what are you doing this summer? And I was like, I, I don't really know. I, I don't have my summer quite planned out yet. They're like, you should come work at the na this nature center. You'd be great at it. And I was like, oh, a nature center. Hey, I went to those when I was a kid. That was, that was a cool place. Uh, and so I ended up getting this summer job there. And I was kind of said, oh, my God, this is, this is amazing. I get to go outside and play around. And actually, all these different subject areas that I liked over my 
the history of my life, like astronomy, I get to teach astronomy now. If it's something about biology, like I get to teach biology, uh, I meet, might teach recreation. So we might be taking kids out on a frozen lake and looking at what's under the water or using kick slides to kick, kick across the surface of the water or going out for night hikes looking for owls. I also became a licensed bird bander. So I do a lot of uh, bird banding research, c- catching wild birds and putting tags on them and whatnot. So uh, it's allowed me to have a career where I get to explore and do all kinds of fun stuff. and. Because it's so open, it's sort of like if there's something you want to specialize in, you get to do that. So some of my colleagues are really into insects. Some of them are really into fungus. You know, some of them are really into geology. We all have different uh, strengths and we come together to try to interpret all that and teach to the public. So what's your favorite subject area that you get to teach? All right. So my, yeah, my sort of like jam, uh, I'm a bird guy. So I really uh, do a lot of the bird programs, leading all the bird hikes in the spring, doing the bird banding year round, things like that. I teach young birders summer camp where I take a bunch of teenagers just birding all week and we have a blast because it's super nerdy and fun. But then also the other area that is kind of a, a cool thing for me that not necessarily all the other people I work with are into is astronomy. So just kind of studying what's going on. Uh, in the night sky, but also keeping tabs on all this, all the new physics and weird planets that are being found. And, and that's been a nice vein of stuff for the podcast, too, because I know that none of my co-hosts are going to do stuff about space very often. So I'm like, let's talk about pulsars, you guys. Let's talk about brown dwarfs. Let's talk about some of this weird stuff that is all part of nature. I think when you look at nature as being just slugs and snails and stuff, it's like the whole universe is a natural manifestation of matter i I like to take it all in and once you get into space you know there's so much weird stuff out there planets that are raining diamonds gravitational forces that are so extreme they just don't even make sense anymore you know physics breaks down there's so many cool things like that so probably astronomy and birds are probably my two biggest kind of nerd areas that i go into so this makes me want to ask this question sure. and that's because you basically have my dream job that's what i've always <laughs> wanted to do for real i'm not even kidding yeah i've always wanted to be sort of you know the museum educator type i got my biggest right, kicks yeah. uh during my research career spending time in museum collections and looking at all the natural oh, yeah. stuff love collections yeah exactly and so i want to know sort of how did you get prepared to do this kind of work as a career, right? I recognize that it was a fortuitous sort of happenstance that you took this job, but what did you do to prepare yourself to think about this? Because, you know, we have audience members out there who are going to be taking their science degrees and want to figure out what they want to do with their life. And, you know, maybe academia is not what they want. Likely it's not. And so right. what did you do to prepare yourself? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I have a YouTube channel I've done for a while, too, before I was doing the podcast. And I haven't put a whole lot of stuff on it lately, but it's called Secret Nature. And I had uh, done a sort of random video I threw up about day in the life of a naturalist, where I sort of film myself throughout the day and what I do. Not the teaching part, unfortunately, because, you know, I can't take video of small children and put it on the Internet. But it was sort of like, here's the other stuff I do during the day. Like, oh, by the way, I get to feed this red-tailed hawk sitting on my hand, you know, or I get to, you know, today I'm cleaning out the pond or whatever it is, you know, a little bird feeding pond. And that video has gotten thousands and thousands of views from people who were just like, I, I, what is this? Like, how do I do this? And I keep getting questions where people, I think it's time to make another video because they want to know, how do I do this? How do you get into this? I've been doing this for 25 years. So back when I was in school, there, you couldn't get a degree to be environmental educator. That wasn't a thing. I ended up being at college and there was a really cool program at the University of Minnesota called the Inner College Program where you could design your own degree. 
basically look wow. at all the classes they offer. And as long as you could justify that you were going to have some sort of tangible skill at the end, you worked with advisors and they said, yeah, we'll give you a degree in that. So I looked at all the offerings and said, you know, you guys are offering all the right classes. You just haven't packaged them right. So I took a whole bunch of classes in what's called College of Natural Resources at the time. I took a number of course, a lot of coursework in the recreation department that our uh, college had, our university had, like outdoor program management, how to run an outdoor program. How do you plan a meal for a trip down the river or if you're a canoe trip? How do you keep programs, uh, participants safe, you know, write risk management plans, things like that. And then I had a third part of my degree, which was uh, youth development. And so looking at all three of those, I kind of bundled them together into a degree. And what's really funny is now maybe five years or so after I graduated, they're like, Hey, you guys, guess what? We have this new degree called environmental education. And I'm like, you guys just ripped off my idea. Like, so basically (laughs) you can get a degree in that now. And so we're seeing in our field, it was interesting. The very first naturalist at the park I worked at was a former school teacher who just realized the classroom wasn't wasn't her. The outdoors was calling. And so she got hired to be one of the first naturalists in the state back in about 1969, probably. And so a lot of the first people coming in to be interpretive naturalists um, or environmental educators, as they're called in a lot of states, were school teachers, you know, who were looking for something different. Then you had biologists who were like, I got to get out of this lab or, you know, I got to like, this isn't quite what I signed up for. And they find they want to, you know, just be a communicator instead and teach people about the outdoors. So you had people coming from all these different fields. And that still happens. One of my coworkers, who was the most recent guy we hired, was a graphic designer who had a love of the outdoors and was like, you know, I this my career is not quite what I thought it was going to be, you know. And so we hired Joe and now he's doing this amazing stuff where he is using his graphic design skills to design interpretive displays for us and signs along the trails and stuff that are at such a higher level than when we had our marketing folks do it, no offense to them, but they don't know the background information. So having someone who could create that was amazing. More and more, we are seeing people come into the field, some of the younger people who have a degree in, you know, environmental uh, interpretation and communication. So how do you get into it? Boy, it kind of depends what state you're in. In my state, we have a lot of environmental centers in Minnesota, just nature centers in the Minneapolis-St. Paul Twin Cities area. There's like a dozen of them uh, because Minnesota is superly heavy, heavily focused on parks and recreation and being in the outdoors, whereas some states are like, yeah, we have one in the whole wow. state. Mm-hmm. You know? right. Well, you need one for each of the... Each of the lakes, right? So. Yeah. 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 Uh, there's 13,000 <laughs> lakes, uh, depending on how you yeah. define lakes, so quite a lot. So it kind of kind of comes down to um, showing up, going to the places where if you want to get into the field and you already, say, have a degree in something else, go to those local places, make yourself known, offer to volunteer, but make it really clear, like, I'm volunteering because I want to do this job. So what can I learn? What are those skills that can make me marketable? As long as you're a good communicator sort of inside little inside baseball thing when we're interviewing people we kind of take that as a given that you can do the communications part if you can't it's going to become real apparent real quick so a lot of times we're looking for what are those other skills you can bring that no one on the team has you know do you know how to design a website do you know how to write curriculum do you know something about astronomy you know are you the the bird guy or the bug gal or what's sort of your expertise area and how can you bring something that may, maybe no one else is bringing? You've, maybe you, you maintain aquaria, right? So you're really good at doing animal care, stuff like that. Those often are the things people get hired on. 
not necessarily just the teaching part. You obviously have to have that, but that's what everybody comes to the table with. So what's that unique thing you're going to bring that's going to round out a team in a way that nobody else can? Yeah, that reminds me of my first few years teaching gross anatomy um, at a major medical institution on the East Coast, which we won't name because uh, it's a rival <laughs> of James. Or I should say James's school probably thinks of it as a rival, but I don't know that it's reciprocated. <laughs> Nevertheless, everybody there, my, my first day of lab question is always, you know, where'd you go to school? What did you study? Right? I want to get to know the students. But like, I couldn't ask that question there because it was always the same answers. Like, I went to Harvard. I went to Yale. I went to Princeton. Right, I went right. to Dartmouth. I went to Hopkins. Whatever. It's like, great. That didn't set you out. So what set you apart from everyone else? In yeah. one year in class, I had three professional magicians and a, wow. retired, <laughs> a, a retired detective from wow. the Chicago PD. Amazing. That'll set you apart. Yeah. That's right. I dabbled in magic back Ooh. in the day. <laughs> it was one of, the, one of the first sort of performing type things I did. I was like in high school. Uh, where I did like children's parties and stuff like that doing magic. And actually like there's a lot of parallels, you know, putting yourself in front of an audience, thinking about what is the audience seeing? What am I seeing? Think about perception and taking people along on a journey and a story. Like it's, it's actually kind of related, which is cool. One of my favorite things to follow are like the Twitter feeds of what were you not expecting to learn in grad school is like how to back a horse trailer up 50 yards through a rainforest <laughs> right, or yeah, how, yeah. To, mm-hmm. how to get a Jeep unstuck when the entire hub is, is covered in mud. <laughs> how to clean mice out of your lab with liquid nitrogen. Oh, that's interesting. Cool. Oh, really? That's interesting because I learned how to collect mice for my lab, which is very strange. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. We could have had a, a dual partnership uh-huh. here. <laughs> I didn't know with all the raptor care that I do that I would be like, you know, picking up owl pellets every day or like gutting <laughs> rats, you know. And we did have someone uh, came in. I just, We were trying to say, okay, you know, you're going to learn how to do animal care. And we're going in and opening the fridge and pulling out like a rat or something like, okay, you want to make an incision here and cut up here and pull the guts out, you know? And they're just like, oh, um, so is this like a required part of the job? <laughs> like what that does someone do question. if they can't handle this part? You know? right. yeah. um, well, that's going to be a challenge because the bird has to eat. Um, that's right. And we all share in that responsibility, you know? That's right. It's a uh, bird eat rat world yeah. out there. Well, on that note, (laughs) let's hear a message from another podcast that I think you'll all enjoy. Strange by nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. They make the sound by vigorously rubbing their penis on their abdomen. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Then at night... They come out and crawl around your face and mate with each other. Oh, oh. But Victoria, I would like to sleep tonight. As naturalists, let's face it, we find something dead, we go and we poke it with a stick. I did that with the deer what, like three weeks ago. As you do. Rachel, Rachel, no, no, no. You weren't paying attention. Blood and mucus. Oh, right. Sorry. <laughs> Oh, All right. Man. This episode is going off the rails. This is the quality oh, content people come here for. <laughs> Strange by Nature podcast was chosen as one of the best science podcasts of 2021. Come join the fun wherever you find your podcasts. Back with Kirk Mona, and we're going to talk about some news. So, 
Recently, an international team of researchers used magnetic fields to control gallium to the point where they could phase between the metal's liquid and solid state, which could serve as a breakthrough in the fields of soft robotics, engineering, and biomedicine. But I don't want to talk about all that nerd stuff, because what these maniacs at Carnegie Mellon did was create the T-1000 liquid metal terminator. So if you see Arnold Schwarzenegger and Linda Hamilton driving through Pittsburgh with a small arsenal of weaponry, you know things have gone kind of poorly in the Steel City. So, uh, also, I think we need to make sure that we get this timeline's John Connor, like, somewhere up new, near the University of Vermont so that the Xenobots cannot get their oh, hands on this the Gallium Xenobots. stuff. Yeah, it it's always, always does. coming back to the Xenobots. No one's talking about these dang Xenobots. Yeah. <laughs> That's the truth. We're, I'm bearing the lead here. They made like a little Lego dude right. out of gallium and they used magnets to make him phase through a little grid. That's fun. I'm sure not a harbinger of our own doom. <laughs> That's how it starts with a cute Lego person. That's right. Did you catch the little camera trickery at the end though? Oh, I didn't. Talk about it. Yeah. What? Wait, what happened? Well, the, the little Lego man is in like a little cage for those people who haven't seen it yet. And then he or she, you know, melts moves through the bars and then reassembles back into the Lego minifigure, except that's not what really happened. They actually took that little pool of gallium, uh, recast it into, into, into the shape of the figure and then set him back up and cut all that out. So it looks like it reassembled itself, which would be truly like amazing. And it's totally not what, what happened. Not yet. Not yet. I was, this is like my sort of gripe with a lot of these science articles is something kind of cool happens, but then it gets so hyped into something that wasn't like, once I read it, I was like, wait, so they took some gallium, which, you know, you can basically melt in the palm of your hand. It's the melting point is so close to the human body. Like, so they like basically, six degrees. yeah, they put like a, a little Lego minifig that they cast of gallium in a box, got it warm enough to melt and pour out. And we're like, ta-da! You go, that's, that's, what, that's what you did? Okay, now it's a little more complicated than that. They, they put, like, metal particles into the gallium so they could manipulate with magnets. I think they, it, the article was a little unclear. It sounded like they may, maybe used rotating uh, magnetic currents to kind of induce heat in it to create the melting. So they alternated the magnetic field which then drives a current and when you right. have when you drive a current through a material then it's naturally will heat it up gotcha. and yeah. so that's yeah that's what happened for that so that's that's cool that's a little different than just you know like putting it on a hot plate <laughs> <laughs> but like and, and and i can see some cool applications for this like a um like uh, they mentioned like nails and i was like well boy that's not gonna be very strong but i could kind of see if you had like two pieces of material and a slot between them and you could basically you basically do what people used to do with lead where you're know, like pouring lead into something and fixing it into place um and the fact that you could use magnetic fields as the thing to heat that up and make it take another shape that's that's all super cool i, I think the term robot is a bit strong <laughs> if all you Very have generous. is a, a metal that you found a interesting way to melt it i agree with you although they've been referring to them as soft robots and so really yeah. what we're waiting for is for them to build the hard robot that then recasts that gallium into the minifig right and that Ooh, is sure. a cool story right that's also one yeah. that is going to uh is be the harbinger for our impending doom for sure <laughs> 
Right. What I wondered was when I first kind of read it is, are there attempts to make them, you know, reassemble themselves? Like if you have these particles in there, is there some way you could probably starting from a very basic situation or type uh, model, but having something melt down and then actually make it reform into a specific shape as opposed to a molten puddle. Theoretically, I feel like something like that could be possible uh, with enough thinking about it, but it's, uh, yeah, we're definitely not there. But I guess it has to start somewhere. I'm yeah. I'm the overly optimistic person, just throwing it out there. I see this, I'm like, it's going to happen someday, obviously. So I think it's cool that they made this first step. And then, yeah, where do you go from there? It becomes really, really difficult. I don't know if this is possible, but I was just like recently my um, husband broke his kneecap in multiple pieces. And then it had Ouch. to be reassembled with screws and wires and those screws were sticking out of his patella which really hurt and so then he had to have another surgery to get those removed but they couldn't remove all of them and i'm wondering if like you can find a way to have screws stay in your body for an electromagnetic field warm it up a little bit and extract it that'd be awesome i don't know if you can we're taking out the robot part here. It's amazing how quickly you go from the fun sci-fi thing to like actual practical stuff. And I guess that's what they wanted us to do anyway. Fine. <laughs> but um Think of it, the think of the dangers though, with like, you know, they're we're surrounded by electromagnetic fields. And of course a lot of people are concerned about, you know, all kinds of nonsense things with that. But if you would literally had pins holding your knee together that could be melted by different types of electromagnetic fields and you, you know, end up sitting too close to something that is giving off <laughs> a magnetic field, rotating field or something like that. All of a sudden you're like, oh, my knee fell apart. Uh-oh, that wasn't supposed to happen for two weeks. I mean, that also comes back to my husband can't get in an MRI because he has so much hardware holding his spine together. So he already <laughs> yeah. has that baseline. Um <laughs> But you bring in a great point because typically there's like standards for humans to be around magnetic fields for like just pacemakers and things like that. Mm -hmm. But if someone crosses that barrier or it's not specifically marked and it can trigger hardware melting out. (laughs) Imagine another level. If you want to go sci-fi, imagine, you know, your spaceship is constructed out of this. And you're like, man, this thing's indestructible. And someone's like, anybody got like a radio transmitter? Okay, here we go. Let's do it. Boop, just melt their whole ship. Well, that was that didn't go well. Uh. Yeah. You know what I would be willing to give to the movie studio that is going to use this as a premise is allowing them to just transmit this podcast into space to melt the alien spaceship. That's so generous. With, with that radio. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm, I'm nothing if not a giver. Science night coming in hot. That's right. We'll save the world. I have, I've often thought that this podcast would save the world. I just didn't realize it would be so utilitarian in the way that it did it. I'm just going to say one thing. I was like reading the article and I, I wanted them to talk more about this because they say with this technique, the researchers were able to get these robots to solder circuits. I can understand that. Sure. Mold themselves into a universal screw. Remove objects from a dummy stomach. Mm. They just like threw that in there. Like, I, feel I didn't like that's... catch that part. I didn't see that. Yeah. That would have caught my yeah, attention, too, because I'm thinking, oh. It's just thrown out there. I mean, there are, you know, farmers and whatnot who will, you can buy something called a cow magnet. Have you guys seen these? Basically, it's a magnet you can have a cow swallow, and then you can use one from the outside to kind of move around and try to catch, you know, you know particles and whatnot that might be in their stomach. There's a couple of different ways you could use them. But, you know, I, I could see if you had something, say, in a stomach that was 
this molten material? Could you use it to maybe encapsulate something that had gotten in there? Um, maybe you have something toxic in the stomach. It becomes encapsulated in the in this gallium, and then it becomes past you know indigestible through someone's system. Uh, there could be some really cool uh, applications around something like that. Yeah, something to just like smooth the edges out so it's easily passed through the. Oh, that too. Yeah, I wouldn't think about that. I was thinking more something like a a toxic material, but even like a sharp. You know, someone swallows something sharp. It's like, let's make it round and get it out. Okay, gallium. Right. This is sounding a lot like a metal version of Metamucil. Really, (laughs) Uh, that would be Metal (laughs) Musil. Right, Metal Musil. Very good. Well, let's move from one liquid metal to another liquid metal. 20 years ago, Hillary Swank and Aaron Eckhart <laughs> underwhelmed the dozens of people that saw The Core in theaters, oh, man. where a ragtag group was assembled to fix one of the most outlandish disasters Hollywood has ever thought of, that the Earth's core would stop spinning. That's ridiculous. Why are we even talking about this dang movie? Oh, no. I got one of those standard science night things where just something goes over the transom. Turns out, this is a very real possibility that the Earth's molten core could stop spinning or may even begin reversing direction. And we've also heard that Hillary Swank, Aaron Eckhart, and Stanley Tucci have been moved to a secure location and are working on a solution. So, we got a core slowdown. Let's talk about what that actually means. Team, do we need to start working? Do we need to start shoveling to the Earth's core and... I don't know what what did they do in that movie? They they nuked the core. <laughs> Are they sequestered <laughs> to work on a solution or a sequel? That's what I want to know. Mm. <laughs> I mean, yes and yes. In grad school, I got tickets to go to the Daily Show with John Stewart. So a long time ago, and that was the day that Hillary Swank was the guest talking about the core. And so she was saying that if the core. Of the Earth stops spinning, your microwave doesn't work. I think that is a great example about how scientists involved in movies need to do a better job of explaining to people who are working on the movies what they're actually talking about. Because wow. obviously there was like mist in translation there. Also, I think birds just dropped out of the sky, right? In the movie. In the movie. I, I thought you were looking out the window. No. <laughs> I'm fascinated. Like, what if she heard someone say something, and that was a misinterpretation? What were they trying to explain to her? Right. That she thought That's microwaves would stop working. Like the physics behind <laughs> microwaves. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So That's my aside. What, Sorry. What would actually happen when, apparently when, the Earth's core stops spinning? I think it'd be what will happen. Yeah. yeah it will right. happen. Not yeah. Necessarily. I mean, off the top of my head, I, I'd say probably, you know, we're going to there'd be less volcanic activity. Uh, you're going to also lose the magnetic field around the Earth because mm-hmm. that's where that's presumed to come from. So you have uh, amazing aurora on the bright side, right? Because the solar wind is not being deflected away anymore. So it's like beautiful aurora every night at all latitudes. Awesome. I mean, that sounds really cool. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Now, on the downside, mm-hmm. you are uh, being bombarded with cosmic uh, radiation and getting cancer. So, sure. you know, those things are probably not the best trade-off to each other. Uh, our atmosphere mm-hmm. would probably eventually be stripped away by the solar wind, uh, mm-hmm. so it'd be awful hard to breathe. Uh, you know, it's it's not a good situation. But the aurora is going to look real cool. But the right? aurora would be beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. We'd have that to look at as we slowly die. My favorite part of the story that we read was that there were three take-home points, right? 
and the order of them was interesting yep. to me. So the first take-home point is that the inner the inner core's rotation may be slowing down and reversing course. The second point was that these findings may suggest a larger pattern at work. And three, no, the world isn't ending. But within that bullet point, they very clearly say that uh, nothing's happening yet, and more research is needed to know whether something will happen. I feel like they definitely should have started with that. Yeah, start off with that one. Right. So first of all, start with that one. But second of all, you undercut that one also by saying we don't really know either. Yeah. Maybe the messaging needs to be a little bit stronger in a particular vein, but maybe not saying we need more research to know for sure is not the one to say right now when you say the world is not ending. There were, I mean, obviously a lot of articles about this online over the last week or so. It's something we run into on our show all the time where you find a story and you go, oh my gosh, this is like, I've got to talk about this on the show. And then you realize that the article and the headline don't necessarily tell the same story. Mm-hmm. And people tend to get mm-hmm. upset with science writers sometimes that like, oh my God, that was such a misleading headline, total clickbait. And it's important to realize that often the one the people who wrote the story are not the same as the headline writers. Right. Yep. Granted, there has been some terrible science reporting on this story, uh, but there's also been just some demonstrably horrifying headlines and a lot of misinterpreted stuff. Like you see countless stories that the core has reversed direction. And you're like, well, not, no, no, it hasn't. <laughs> it absolutely has not. Like, it, and it's all relative to the spin of like the mantle. Like it, it, yeah. it, it has now come into alignment. They're both spinning at the same direction. So yes, relative to each other, uh, there is, it's not spinning, but they're both spinning at the same time. Right. And it's just that it was going faster than the mantle. And now it's going it's the same speed. And even if it were to slow down even more and kind of be going the opposite direction relatively, they're still both spinning in the same direction and it is still turning. So it's like, that's a subtlety, but wow, was that missed in a lot of the reporting and probably 100% of the headlines kind of got that one wrong, which is a little disconcerting. Well, they also said that they had data that they found another possible slowing down or reversal event had happened before in the 1970s, in the early 1970s. Mm -hmm. And we're all still here. So I think our microwaves will still work. Especially the ones from the 70s. Those things were built like workhorses, man. You cook a turkey in those things. So this is interesting, right? So we've got um, evidence that this happened in the 70s. And now we have evidence that this is happening again now. Has anybody checked to see what Kylo Ren's up to? (laughs) Just say it. He comes from a long line of people who might want to reverse the core (laughs) and align the electromagnetic magnetic fields, right? Or even even Superman. I believe at one point Superman just reversed the Earth by uh, just flying around it really fast. Yeah. And he had time go backwards. That's just basic physics. Right, right. No, that's a good point. So we can fix climate change. We can we can go back in time before it ever going back to the seventies. We might we might want to go back. No, we got to go back further. A little further, yeah. Yeah, make the seventies not happen, and we'll be uh, yeah. doing ourselves a big favor. You've made a great point, Kurt, about the sensational headlines and the yeah, story. Yeah. And it's one thing we're always trying to do in science is get funding. Absolutely. So we have a hard time in our in you know many fields of you make this scientific discovery, maybe it's not a huge breakthrough, but your institution wants to get it in the news because oh, yeah. that 
promotes your institution. Mm -hmm. So then they'll sensationalize it. And as a scientist, Mm -hmm. you're like trying to be like, it's not a breakthrough. Like, this is really (laughs) what it is. And then your PR people are like, oh, it's a breakthrough? Just like the Gallium Lego man who got reassembled in the video, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a tu- it's a tough thing, you know. Like you know, in the case of your you know college or university, they're trying to attract attention because they're trying to get funding. In the case of uh, a magazine or a newspaper or an online journal, you know, they're trying to just attract readers so they can keep the doors open. Yeah. Uh, in terms of a podcast, you're trying to get a really catchy title to make people click on your episode that week and listen to it. And how do you get at the core of What's really exciting without exaggerating it, it's one of the actual reasons we started our podcast was there's a lot of popular podcasts out there that are all about, you know, Bigfoot and, you know, these these things in nature that people feel the need to, uh, you know, make up because they're fun stories. And we kind of said, you know, nature is weird enough on its own. We do not have to make up strange things my my brother works in the gaming industry um and i know his always thing is he's like yeah we make up monsters and stuff but he's like if you go back to historical documents i can't even begin to make something as bizarre as some of these people have in the past you know some of the historical veins we can mine for monsters are incredible and i feel the same way about nature like you know there are some creatures out there that are so utterly bizarre like we don't need to invent new ones that frankly aren't as interesting as some of these things that are actually like brain-eating amoebas and, you know, uh, some of the creatures of the deep ocean that are just so utterly bizarre. How do we excitedly communicate about those with the public in a factual way to make them understand? Like, there's amazing stuff going on without having to exaggerate. Uh, but when you're competing against aliens and some of these different fringe science type things it's hard to compete sometimes because sensationalism has been around for a long time because it works you know it's a successful communication strategy for making money not necessarily for spreading the truth but people love a good story they love a good sensational story so it's like how do you how do you balance that with the science you're doing or the science you want to report about is is a real challenge You have made it to the end of another episode, but don't worry, we got plenty more coming your way for the rest of the winter and on into the spring. So make sure you're following us on social media. If you want to follow me, I'm on Twitter at James underscore read three. I got to warn you, it's going to be a lot of toxic Philadelphia Eagles stuff going on there. So maybe you won't mute me for a couple weeks. But anyway, Steph, where can everybody find and follow you? You can follow me on Twitter at Steffi Deem or Instagram at Starshipin. And we're finally, finally at doing the assembly of the experiment. So you can check in and watch pictures and, and see our progress. I'm excited. Hashtag let's make a tokamak. Yes. And Jason, where can everybody find you? You can also find me on Twitter at OregonJM. It'll be full of uh, Kansas City football stuff. Go Chiefs. There we go. Kelsey Bolt's going to happen. Manifest it. Kirk, tell everyone where we can find, follow you, listen to your podcast, all that good stuff. Well, you can search for Strange by Nature podcast in wherever you get your podcasts. We're at strangebynature.com, where you can find links to all of our different social media networks. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. We're still on Twitter and uh, also over at Mastodon, rocking a Mastodon account over there at mastodon.party. But just search for Strange by Nature podcast and we'll show up pretty much everywhere we've wormed our little tentacles into. 
Well, you can follow the show at Pod and visit our home on the web, SciNight.com, for past episodes, links to the stories we talk about and the people we talk to, and our merch, including a few designs that came up with definitely all on my own with no outside inspiration at all. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go over to SciNight.com and look at it. We'll be back in two weeks with a regular episode, and I think we got a special episode coming up soon, so check our social media feeds for the Festival of Fusion 2022. Until then, have a great night. The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. To find out more about our shows, go to riverpower.xyz.